Welcome to the podcast, the destination for insightful discussions and interviews on the appreciation, conservation, and husbandry of reptiles with a focus on turtles and tortoises. Now, let's join our team of turtle nerds. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 87 of the podcast. Our special guest tonight is uh, Dr. Craig Stanford from the University of Southern California. Um, Craig has uh, written a book that I suspect many of us have read, The Last Tortoise. And uh, we're looking forward to chatting with him today about uh, his work um, both at USC as the TFTSG chair, uh, an upcoming book, and uh, talking about one of his favorite projects as well, which is uh, Terrapine Quahila. So uh, we're really glad to have you, Craig. Thanks for joining us this month on the podcast. Hey, thanks very much for having me. And I want to point out that roll-in video, very well done, and a very strong emphasis on Anthony being a tall person, I noticed. <laughs> I'm not yeah, sure if that's intentional or what. Or, you got to play the cards. You've, yeah, I was impressed. Yeah. I like the dunk, the basketball dunk and all that. <laughs> Seriously, I wanted to begin um, by, by thanking you guys, not only for doing this, which is super cool, this outreach that you do, but just for, you know, I, we have some other breeders in the specialist group but you guys are special. I mean, I've known two of you for a number of years, but I just feel the work you do is really valuable, not only outreach, but the breeding itself. And as you know, many breeders are, but not all breeders are conservation-minded. So it's a really good thing, and we're grateful for you. So Thank you very much, Craig. Yeah. Um, <laughs> me yeah. so much. Seriously, yeah. It feels great to start with. That's right. Oh. So um, one of the things that I, I thought would be great to talk about while you're you're here with us is, um, you know, we have this uh, tortoise and freshwater turtle specialist group um, and you, you have chaired that. I think you're uh, in the first or second year of your second term. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, like and, this year. Yeah. 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 And um, I, that, that said, I bet there's a lot of our viewers um, and, and uh, that don't necessarily know a whole lot about um, about the specialist group or what it what it actually does. So I thought one of the uh, cool things that we could do while you're on show on the show is uh, get people a chance to understand, like, how does this group help um, pursue uh conservation for turtles and tortoises how does the group help um protect the turtles or any of those variables yeah that's a good way to start so yeah most people i, I encounter people even every year at the tsa meetings the main turtle meetings that we do every august who don't really exactly know what the specialist group is that's why i always begin my intro the first morning of those meetings with an explanation so you probably would encounter at most if you were to google any turtle species at all comma red list because IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the world's largest conservation monitoring body based in Geneva, Switzerland, is composed of many, many specialist groups, something like 200 right now, I believe. And there's a specialist group for individual species. There's a tiger specialist group. There's a giant panda special, but then there also are specialist groups that cover, uh, you know, evergreen trees coniferous trees that would be hundreds and sometimes even thousands of species. So we are the tortoise and freshwater turtle specialist group. There's a separate group for the sea turtles, the seven sea turtles. We cover about 360 of the freshwater turtles and tortoises. And our, we have multiple jobs, but the group is composed of about 400 scientists and conservationists. And our fundamental task is 
to, to repeatedly assess or reassess the conservation status of all the different turtles and tortoises out there. So it takes a long time to do this. We gather information and data from experts. We hold workshops. When we have the budget, we work on a very small budget. When we have the budget, we'll hold a workshop. You know, last one was in Singapore. We had all these people to specialize in Asian turtles, many of which you guys know very well, like the Manuria tortoises, for instance, Impressa and Emmys. And we had experts from those parts of the world um, bringing in their, their, their knowledge and their actual data, but also just their perspective. Um, and then we do an assessment. We say, okay, this species is listed as endangered. Should it be uplisted to critically endangered? Should it be downlisted to something less like vulnerable? And in that way, we try to, we make our own draft assessment as a specialist group, and then we pitch that to IUCN, the larger bureaucratic organization, and eventually, and it's a, it's a bureaucracy, so it takes time, they will then reassess and they'll change the designation. You know, so maybe something like a desert tortoise in the American Southwest, which is so well studied, and there are so many people out there trying to save them that we forget that they're in terrible trouble. And then we work to get them uplisted. And when you get something uplisted, it isn't just, it isn't just the words. It isn't just the going to, to Google and finding it. It usually means that there is greater support in country. If I go to a government, you know, the Indian government or the Thai government, I say, this is a critically endangered animal now. We need to change our thinking about the protected areas where it lives. We need to protect new areas. We need to step up poaching enforcement and that kind of thing. So there's real, there's real meaning behind it. And hopefully there's a bite to the designation. So that's one of the main things we do. We also are involved in a lot of the anti-poaching efforts. We're involved whenever there's a confiscation somewhere in the world. Um, I spent a lot of time writing letters, um, either thanking the government of Madagascar for intercepting some animals that were going to be smuggled out to Asia or begging, you know, or, or beseeching governments to do more. Um, I, I had a correspondence with the U.S. ambassador to Zambia, uh, because sorry, to, to, to Mozambique, sorry, because they, they confiscated animals. They made a big bust. And, you know, it's not that different from when we hear about African governments stopping the ivory trade in elephants. It's kind of the same idea. So that's, that's a little nutshell of what the specialist group does. And um, it's really, it's open. People apply. We circulate CVs and consider whether it's an appropriate applicant. It's open to people who really have a career in which they do a lot of turtle and tortoise work, mostly field people um, or working in the anti-smuggling efforts, but also sometimes captive people and sometimes captive, captive breeders. Can you, um, well, I'm really glad that you brought up uh, a little bit about what goes into listing these animals or uplisting them, you know, because I think a lot of what we see going on out there, especially on social media platforms, is when you hear about a status of an animal being changed. And this also goes hand in hand when taxonomic changes happen. It kind of drives people nuts and people are quick to say, how did that happen? Why did that happen? What's going on here? That's ridiculous. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about like Sure. From your perspective, how frustrating it probably yeah, is to, yeah. to have to handle that and what you guys go through, because I think people think somebody just goes, yeah, I think it should be this and that's it. But it's not like yeah. that. No, I, I totally agree. And we all can just recognize at the outset it's a contentious issue when we start changing designations. There are a lot of people out there who, uh, who think that the CITES, the, which is the international convention that governs the, the, the cross-border commerce and transport of these animals, that when you change something from CITES 2 or from, or from CITES 3 to CITES 2, CITES 2 to CITES 1, the, the effort then to restrict commerce 
a lot of people feel like, especially captive breeders will feel like you're encouraging the black market because mm -hmm. people then, in order to avoid the, all the paperwork hassles and all the regulatory stuff, they'll just turn to buying some animal that's been smuggled. And I totally get that concern. Frankly, and I'm a little bit in the middle of it, and I, I will be very upfront, most of the people I know in the, in the specialist group, even if they're very dedicated field people who don't want to keep turtles at all, they began, you know, our love of the animals began with us keeping. I had a whole bedroom full of animals in New Jersey growing up, and we all have that passion. So I'm totally sympathetic to that point of view, and I'm sympathetic to the captive breeders who sometimes think you're restricting rather than helping the, the effort to save these animals. The bottom line for me is that there are, you know, the, the, the group, the 360 species, there's a higher percentage of turtles and tortoises that are threatened with extinction than any other large group of vertebrates on the planet. Right. Primates, which is ironically my other specialty and area, are the other group that's so threatened. Both of them have more than 50% of the known species that are in a threatened category, um, in, in th in endangered, vulnerable, endangered, critically endangered, et cetera, or extinct in the wild. So we feel that we have to do something. Now, there was recently a thing I never post in the comments section on social media, but I did the other day, like for the first time in a year. I don't know if you guys saw that. It was on a Facebook post addressing the fact that there's a proposal to list everything. Every oh, right. yeah. everything CITES to, and their people were weighing in. I thought it was a pretty reasonable debate back and forth. It wasn't just a bunch of people saying, I hate this, don't try to control my my desire to keep and breed and sell these animals and you're hurting the conservation effort. Anyway, I weighed in and just said, look, the situation is dire. We need to do what we can do. And my bottom line feeling, which I'm totally open to us talking about, the, the four of us and anybody who wants to chime in, is that in the case of some really, really rare turtles and tortoises where they're literally, it's a handful of animals left, a few dozen animals, a hundred animals left, captive breeding is absolutely essential, right? We have species that, were basically functionally extinct in the wild, Burmese star tortoises, right? Extinct in Myanmar in the wild because they've been poached out. But a lot of captive breeding, they live well and breed well in captivity, thankfully. And now there are like 20,000 in captivity worldwide, at least, probably more. And now they're being reintroduced by, by the Platt, Stephen Calyar Platt, who are really dedicated to this, reintroducing them to protected areas in Myanmar. So without captive breeding, those animals would just be gone. No question. Right. And then you have plowshare tortoises. You have you have the giant Yangtze softshell, the raphidus, um, in China, Vietnam. Those animals would just be gone without captive breeding, no question. But my my point of view is that for the ninety plus percent that are not that critically endangered yet, just let's let's protect the wild populations. And right. so you know, and the frank thing is, and I know I tick off people in the specialist group too, who are some of them just world-renowned breeders and have figured out how to breed animals nobody else knows how to breed. By, by just saying, yeah, but you know, when there is a commercial side to this, uh, we're not trying to hurt anybody's livelihood, but when there's a commercial side to this, then we all recognize that, that a big-time, big-scale captive breeder has a stake in this that goes beyond conservation. Yeah, yeah. And so if somebody says, hey, you know, these animals, there shouldn't be all these regulations, let me do what I need to do to breed more of them. Let's say Chinese box turtles, Kuwara, for instance. But still, we recognize if anybody is actually breeding them, they're very, very valuable. And so that person's got a pretty strong stake in keeping the regulations off the table. So that's the back and forth that we go through. And all I can say is that I'm, I'm, I recognize both sides, but I'm definitely the person who's pushing for 
us to try to prevent these animals from being transported. And yeah, if it affects captive breeding, it may limit some of the captive breeding efforts, but on the whole, that's my strong feeling is that we're protecting wild populations from being, you know, illegally transported. Right. Right. It makes sense, honestly. And I, I wish, you know, I wish there was more of a way to, you know, um, get more people to understand it that way, you know, because I think a lot of people, especially in the captive sector, they automatically just think, you know, that there's only two sides to this and that if you're on one side, you think one way. And if you're on the other, you only think that way. And that's, that's not the case. In fact, I'm learning now as time goes on that there's actually more of us that see the bigger picture, you know, and someone like you in your position, what you're, you know, what you probably have to deal with. I mean, it, 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 it it's bigger than any, anybody else. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you're, you're trying to protect the wild populations. And, and I understand if somebody has their livelihood that could possibly be maybe dented by it or whatever. Yeah. But in the end, like, kind of like you said, we all started basically the same way. So you started because you love the animals, right? Well, totally. you know. And I would just, I just want to reiterate again and just say that there are species that would be extinct now or just about extinct without captive breeding. That's a great thing to support captive breeders. But the vast majority of turtles and tortoises, I, I think there are many people, I'm not even singling out breeders, but just people who think that by keeping a pair, you know, 1.1 of some turtle species in their house, and getting them to breed eventually, they're contributing to conservation, even if those turtles were taken out of the wild. And that, of course, is not really the case. So in most, most of the time, these animals are better off in the wild. If we can protect their habitats, that's the ideal thing. Some species are so intensely poached, so reduced, that that's just not possible anymore. And that's when we really need captive breeding. That's my, that's my bottom line. Yeah, you know, one of the things we've talked about as an organization in, in our education and our outreach is being is like the difference between conservation and preservation. Um, they're different things. And in some ways, they're both they're, they both have importance, right? Without the preservation side as well, um, sometimes you can't foster some of that extra like appreciation that people get from seeing them in, in zoos or in person in a way they might not be able to interact with them in the wild. So that preservation part, like how has a role, but it's definitely not equivalent to conservation. Just because you're preserving something doesn't mean you're actually conserving it. And so that, you know, that's an important hair that we try to split. Um, so it's cool to kind of hear you talk about that a little bit too. Well, it is true. Public education and the kind of outreach you guys do is super important because it is true that compared to when I was a kid, when the option was to go to a pet store and buy something that was imported where most of the animals died in transport or in a pet store, um, and today people, I think people in general, I mean, for instance, I go back to Jersey where I grew up, I'm in California now, and I go to places, Chris, that you probably know, and I see way more painted turtles, way more snapping turtles, and way more box turtles than I saw when I was growing up. And I think that speaks to not just about, it's about habitat preservation. I think it's also about, it's not okay if some kid brings home a box turtle and says to mom and dad, I'm going to put it in a bucket in the garage. Yeah, yeah. Much more likely today that the parents say, no, we're going to put it back where you found it. You know, and I just think that obviously there are a lot of people with, with private collections, but I do think that that's more common today that there's, there's, there's just a knowledge of what to do and what not to do. There, there really, there definitely is. There, there is, you know, um, I'm going to bring up, we brought this up on one, one podcast, uh, um, 
I think over the winter, maybe last year, whatever, we were talking about um, children's books. And there's a book that I read to my daughter, my older daughter, still almost every night. She's like, Daddy, read, read the Blanding's Turtle book. And there's this book that's, that's called a, a Blanding's Turtle Story. And in it, it's real quick, really cute paintings, you know, and it's, it's a book where the proceeds go to the um, conservation of the turtles out in Wisconsin. And it, it talks in there about how, you know, the family comes across a turtle and they think that it's in trouble and they take it home and then they call a nature center and it's, oops, it was better <laughs> turtle back. And, you know, what the turtle room's doing, what turtle conservancy's doing, TSA, all this, this constant outreach. And, and that's where the social media aspect of things really comes in handy. Um, the one positive aspect to it is that you're right. Like there seems to be less of that, like, Oh, box turtle. I'm going to take it home and put it in my room in a fish tank and name it George and, and hope no, it actually I think, I think, I think they're less seen as just commodities and toys mm -hmm. than they were when I was growing up. I've talked to some of the rattlesnake people, the rattlesnake people, and they'll say it's really encouraging that these days when somebody finds a rattlesnake in their backyard in the Southwest, they're more likely to call somebody and say, yeah. Could you remove this animal rather than chop it in half with an ax? Well, that's what they do here with us too now. You know, like they call us. They say, hey, I don't like it, but I don't want to hurt it. Get it off my property or right. whatever. <laughs> this, is, this is kind of a first world issue for all of us in the U.S., right? This obviously isn't happening in a village in Bangladesh or Myanmar or something. But you would hope that in the long term, if we can preserve these animals in the wild till that point, that you will. I, I, I try to be an optimist. It's so easy to be doom and gloom. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I go to conferences not just TSA, other conferences, you know, sit with people, you know, in the evening in a bar or something. And people are, you know, some of our group are really doom and gloom. Oh, it's all, it's all lost. We can't, we're going to lose all these 90% of it. And I just feel like first, that's not true. And second, you just can't take that attitude because it's first of all, not productive. If you're going to be a pessimist, yeah. if any of us are going to be pessimists, then what's the point of doing what we do? And you have to have hope. It's, yeah, you got to have hope. And hope is also way more fun. It's just yeah. yeah, that's true. It, it is. And yeah. anything you do in your life, it's way more fun to be hopeful, right? Even it's if in the end, that quote right there, you know, it's just way. way it's, I'm not. Actually, I'm actually ripping that off from my favorite nature writer, David Quammen. Uh, he has a great quote that says something like that. You know, hope is better than despair because first, it's more productive, and second, it's way more fun. So okay. it's um, but but in fact, being being bleak about the whole thing, and it's easy to be bleak, doesn't serve anyone or any. It doesn't serve the animals either. So. I like to think of it being, uh, that's my big thing I end lectures with usually, even though we're kind of at the beginning of this. I always say that, that, that America went through a bottleneck in terms of biodiversity in 1800s. You know, the 60 million bison got reduced to like 100. Mm -hmm. And whooping cranes were nearly gone. And wolves were nearly gone. And grizzlies were nearly gone. And yet all of those species were saved at the 11th, literally the 11th hour, mm -hmm. right? And so I like to think that that will be true for turtles and tortoises also, including in other countries that are still in that bottleneck. We've gone through the bottleneck. Yeah. We have our national parks and all of our the money that goes to conservation efforts. But many countries that just can't afford to do that right now, we're trying to help them. And hopefully they get through that bottleneck with a lot of the biodiversity preserved also. Can I ask a question? I, 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 if we could just circle back for a second. Um, when you were talking about kind of making the efforts to uplist a species with the IUCN, uh, I see a lot of species that kind of sit for a long time, like some of the conixus that have been like, you know, totally. uh, not enough years. information since like 1996. Yeah. So like, 
what goes into that process? Obviously, it has to be back. I'm assuming. I don't know what the process is. I assume it has to be backed by science. So there has to be someone actually doing the research to back up these claims. That's a, that's a great point, Anthony, because I won't get political about it. But at that point, it has to be backed up by good science. There, We feel in the turtle and tortoise group that there are other groups that are trying to list, assess, and reassess species wholesale. And so they just kind of make a bunch of assumptions. Sometimes people, I, as I understand, even just go to the literature. They don't actually even ask anybody. They just go to the literature and try to make these assessments. So we believe, and when I say we, it's not just me. I've been the chair for the last several years, but Anders Rodin, Peter Paul Van Dyke, Brian Horn, everybody who's been a chair, we, we believe in quality control as much as anything. And when I became chair, I was asked to be chair 2017, and I had this kind of back and forth, slightly awkward discussion with the, the powers that be because I said, I want a balance between the speed with which we uplist or reassess and then the quality of the, the quality. The assessment means nothing. If you're just going to say, oh, yeah, it's seven years have gone by, it must be critically endangered now, right? That's meaningless. That's actually counterproductive. So, yeah, it's a slow process, and there are 360 species. I'm not, I'm not involved in the red listing process. I'm the chair. I do the other stuff. But... Um, Anders Rudin has done that for many, many years. Vivian Paez from Colombia is the new coordinator, and Anders is basically helping her and training her. And so I think they all agree. We all agree that. So, so Vivian, being from Colombia, is tackling uh, the Amazon turtle, South American turtles, next as a big group. We did, like I said, we did mainland East Asia, Southeast Asia a couple of years ago. So yeah, when you see species there like Canixus, for instance, we just have to circle back to them. And it, it, it's tedious. It takes time. It's frustrating. In the end, we want to get it right. And so we put the we put the time in. And then to be honest, not to be defensive, but once we do our part, we then send it off to IUCN and they put it through a review process that can take a very long time. They can take a couple of years sometimes. So when it finally gets published online, it represents actually years of, of work. But yeah, there are many species out there that we we list them even as data deficient, the DD category. Because we just haven't, you know, we, ha we haven't gotten enough experts to tell us what's going on. Again, you, you know, we, we have these first world problems. We live in a country where there's an army of biologists, conservationists working on desert tortoises in the Mojave Desert, close to where I am. It's like hundreds of people. And I've given talks at those meetings. I've done like a, a keynote kind of thing. And I'll say, you know, do you appreciate that most of the other tortoise species in the world have like one person? Literally one person who's the expert, the local expert, sometimes not even one person. So it's a it's a task. It's a it's a real task that we were trying to get done. Awesome. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, Craig, you mentioned in passing uh, that, you know, the other species group you're an expert in is also highly endangered as well. And so that happens to be the primates. Um, I, I know you, um, your career, uh, as I recall, since you're a, a anthropologist, uh, bio in biology and anthropology, um, be, does a lot with evolution and you, you spend a lot of time with primates. So how did you, um, get to move from primates back to getting, uh, to do some turtle stuff and even becoming the chair of, of the turtle? Uh, but, because but, I, I know there are still several people that see you as, oh, he's a primate guy, but yeah, yeah, like, but but so like how did you how did you get from you know point A to point B? I think that'd be an interesting uh, story this, to talk way about. This, the way this works, the first time I published anything on turtles, my primatologist colleague said, "So what? You're a turtle guy now?" <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, you cannot you cannot win with certain you know right. 
No, my segue was simple, that I grew up as a kid in the New York area in Jersey wanting to be a herpetologist. And I had, you know, like Chris and you guys all had a house full of herps and all bought from pet stores pretty much and animal, disreputable animal dealers at that time, importers in Jersey. And uh, that was my, that was what I wanted to do. And I got diverted in college um, to, to be interested in primates. And then I went to graduate school for that, moved to the West Coast to do a PhD. And that was my career. I got... I got into primate research. I got invited by Jane Goodall to go work with her. That was my postdoctoral work for six years. And then I had this long career still going on with, you know, six years in Tanzania with chimpanzees, with Jane Goodall, nine years in Uganda with mountain gorillas and chimps in a national park there, seven years in China, collaborating with Chinese uh, scientists, uh, several years in Thailand. And then in the early 2000s, I had all the promotions and all that that professors have to get. And I felt like, hey, you know, um, I have colleagues who are now my age and career state stage. They're just kind of kicking back and not really doing anything exciting anymore. I want to do something kind of new. And I turned back to the her thing. And I had published a couple of papers when I was a grad student on uh, like African python breeding in, in Gombe National Park where Goodall's chimps are. So I always kind of kept my finger in it. But I just went back into it. I began emailing people. And the, the, the little anecdote I love to tell is that when I was 12, 12, 13, um, you know, there was no Google, obviously, there's no internet. I had a tiny little la library in my bedroom. I just started writing letters. You know, I'd, I'd like, I'd go to the pet store, one particular pet store in Elizabeth, New Jersey, actually. Uh, my dad was a friend of the owner, and he would call my dad and say, look, tell your son I've got such and such animal just came in. I'll hold it for him if he wants it. And I'd go in, I'd buy this choco tortoise, which now is, you know, it's a difficult to keep rarely seen tortoise by this tortoise, bring it home. I know nothing about it. And I began writing letters to the Bronx Zoo. I literally write a letter just to dress reptile apartment Bronx Zoo. And I began getting letters back from a guy named John Baylor, who was then an assistant curator, later to become one of the main turtle people in the world in turtle conservation. And we had like a two, three year correspondence. And it was amazing. He would answer this kid's letters. And I'm sure I was one of many, many kids, maybe, maybe you guys. So then 30 years later, when I decided to make turtles and tortoises something part of my profession, I started emailing John Baylor again. And I never told him who I was, that I was one of those kids. He just kept sending me these emails. Oh yeah, you need this telemetry equipment. You should buy it from this place and you should talk to this person. And at some point I, I just was gonna say to him, by the way, you don't remember me, but I was this 12 year old kid. And then he didn't answer that email. And it was because he passed away of, I think I believe congestive heart failure. So it was one of those, Things, but for me, it was this amazing circle that kind of closed. And then, so I've been, I've always been super grateful. I met, I met his widow, by the way, at a TSA meeting several years ago in, in Charleston. It was such a pleasure to be able to tell her that. I'm sure I was one of many people to have that same experience, right? So yeah, so I've always been grateful. And then it was actually uh, Russ Mittermeier, world-renowned conservationist, also a primatologist by training, also a biological anthropologist, but also really into a turtles and tortoises for his whole life and has published a lot on them and is, is, is an authority. And he is the chair of the primate specialist group. He cre created the system basically and coined many of the terms, the buzzwords that we use. And he kind of drew me in and said, hey, you know, why don't you get involved in, the, in the, this other specialist group? And, you know, we could use somebody who wants to be involved even in a leadership role. And that led to me being uh, asked to be chair eventually. And I considered it very carefully and I agreed to do it for one term. And now the second term, which is my last term, I'm gonna do it. Um, yeah, so it's been a totally, and the interesting thing is people say, well, what in the world, you know, what, 
what do they even have remotely in common? Because most of my work is with great apes, chimpanzees, uh, plowshare tortoises, excuse me, what are they, you know? And I would say, well, okay, for one thing, you know, they both live a long time. Tortoises, obviously, much more. They live, their, their reproductive strategy, their evolved strategy, which has worked so well for millions of years, is grow up slowly, reproduce kind of slowly. You know, most tortoises don't lay tons and tons of eggs. A few do, like Manuria, but most don't. And, and have this very high adult survivorship, right? Once, once most tortoises get to be 20, they have, a, they have very low mortality for their, until they're very old. Same for great apes. So there are, there are some parallels. And then the big contrast, which is also interesting and important, is that, you know, uh, the unusual thing about turtles and tortoises is they have commercial value, right? That's, that's when you think about it and you think about all the animals and plants out there, not very much, tiny fraction have commercial value. Orchids have commercial value. Um, you know, seahorses have commercial value. There aren't that many. Most of them are, are you know, ferns and uh, mollusks, and we could, and, you know, prime, nobody's, nobody's keeping and breeding primates in their, in their garage, you know, not many people. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny picture to think about. <laughs> no, nobody says if only we could breed mountain gorillas faster, we could save them. Because it takes five, five years between births and it's not real. But for turtles and tortoises, it's a very different equation. So, and, and, the, and the really cool thing about tortoises in particular, which have always been my special interest, is that because they live so long, you know, you could have a tortoise species literally extinct in the wild and then discover some in captivity and you could actually regenerate the species because they, they, they literally outlive the extinction process. They're poached out of the wild then you find some in somebody's backyard somewhere, you know, in wherever, some other part of the world. And all you need is a female or two, and you can literally save the species. So that's kind of, a, that's the other flip side of the fact that people want to own them and love them and, and want to take them out of the wild. And this, to me, the, the, the awful thing of seeing plowshare tortoises and others radiated, you see them on, the, they're on Facebook pages where, the, where people are keeping them as pets, particularly in Asia, with, with engravings, with their shells engraved, yeah. this is property of Madagascar National Parks. And yet that doesn't deter people from buying them and keeping them for tens of thousands of dollars. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of problem we're up against with those guys. So it's, it's, yeah, that's a long way of explaining my, my segue from primate research into, into turtles and tortoises. So. Yeah, so that that uh, trip ultimately uh, led you to eventually publish uh, your book, The Last Tortoise. Um, I know I've read it uh, at least uh, one or two times. Um, I'm pretty sure Anthony and Chris ha have seen it. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you, um, you know, where that book project started and then lead into what's going on with your new book that's uh, scheduled to release here uh, hopefully later this year. Right. Yeah, so a lot of people in my field, a lot of biologists, we write journal articles, right? We write grant proposals to get money. We write journal articles. We try to publish in really good journals. But early on in my career, I was up for tenure here at USC. I went to my chairman. I said, hey, I think I'm doing really well. I just want to pat on the back, basically. I said, I'm doing really well. I've published a ton, gotten grants, done a lot of research. And he said, well, you don't have a book. I said, yeah, but I wasn't going to write a book because we don't necessarily write. He said, well, I think you should just write a book just to be to cover all your bases. And I went away from the meeting, kind of ticked off, and then I proceeded to put a bunch of articles together into a book uh, that was about chimps and their hunting behavior, meat-eating, which is something if you Google, but you get a lot of stuff about that. And I love the process of writing the book. 
I loved it much more than writing an article. So then I always, I always would have a book going alongside of the other stuff I was doing. And I'm a little OCD about work. And so now I have uh, this, this book that you mentioned that's coming out this year called The Turtle Crisis is my 17th book. I think, I think something like that. And I have the next book is already done, actually, which has nothing to do with turtles or tortoises at all. And will come out, I don't know, maybe in a year or two. So, yeah, The Last Tortoise was the first book I did that was about turtles and tortoises. And it was the first book I did that was not based on my own data. I didn't collect data for that book. I was on sabbatical. It was in 08, I believe. And I went around the world, uh, lined up a bunch of visits and trips to different projects of people who, you know, people working in um, working in Mauritius who were restoring Aldabra tortoises, not restoring them, putting them as proxy species into places where the, 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 the local island tortoises are long, long extinct for hundreds of years. So they can be ecosystem engineers there, that kind of thing. I just, you know, and I went to, I went to Thailand, I went all over the world and I, and I then wrote, wrote about this. What are the big threats? And it was fun. It was really fun and it was well received. I know that Harvard University Press published it. They've sold out of every book they ever, they published. And, um, and then I went back to my other kind of publishing. And then, yeah, recently I was talking to Harvard again about doing another book, The Turtle Crisis, about the most critically endangered species, including freshwater turtles, including sea turtles. And we weren't agreeing on all the terms of what, what the book would look like. And then the Turtle Conservancy people, Eric Good, came in and said, hey, why don't you let, why don't you let us publish this? And so that's what we're doing. And it's been edited. It's going to the printer soon. And it's going to come out, I hope, before the our annual meetings in August to have it there to either give away, sell or whatever. But, but yeah, the turtle crisis is a collection of essays about each one, 16 of them about different critically endangered bog turtle from New Jersey. And I love the fact that I'm writing about these turtles, many of which live in super exotic places like Sulawesi, you know, in Indonesia, yeah. where you have Forston's tortoise and, and, and Leucocephalon Uwanawai, Sulawesi forest tortoise. But I'm also writing about Jersey because where my roots are and they both have critically endangered turtles but very different situation different backstories you know so it's about that it's about the, the back sometimes it's a cultural backstory people are eating these animals you know people value them as food delicacies or they're they're grinding them up into traditional chinese medicine or there's some other poaching problem or there's some other issue like habitat loss so each species has its own separate set of problems and solutions, and that's basically what what the book is about. So, at the at the risk of of a spoiler, and you can skip this question if you want, which one of the sixteen species in the book do you think would be most surprising to your audience? Oh uh, no, I have not thought, I haven't done any interviews for that book, so I haven't got any good answer in my head. <laughs> well, actually, actually, I'll go with I'll go with bob turtles because Chris is really into this. You guys probably are also. And, you know, having grown up in Jersey, never saw a bog turtle because you, you need to know where to look, obviously. And, you know, not everybody's going to tell you where they are and they shouldn't because the sites are well protected. Um, I got a chance to go out with the dean of New Jersey herpetology, uh, Bob Zappalorti, who I had, by the way, met. I mean, I was going to tell you this earlier, Chris. When I was, uh, let's see, when I was in high school, I would go to these animal dealers. There was a guy named Gordon Johnston, who was a middle school science teacher in, in uh Wayne or Pompton Lakes up in northernmost Jersey. Okay. And he just imported things from all over. I remember the first time I went, I was like 15. He had a Bushmaster in a garbage can. He was soaking. <laughs> and he handed me a snake stick and said, here, I'm going to go talk with the grown-up. You just keep make sure he doesn't come out of that garbage can. 
It's pretty. Yeah, in retrospect, with comedic distance, it was amazing, not at the time. Anyway, so he had uh, Burmese pythons, which, of course, now are this invasive species. Yeah. And then where everybody wanted one, imported. And so I had one of those. It grew up. It got to be way too big for my bedroom in, in northern Jersey. And so uh, I went to college, but I went locally. to I went to Drew University, then Rutgers. And I was like a half an hour from home. I left the pipeline at home. I'm going to come home and feed it. The first month I went to college, it did something it had never done. It broke out of the cage I'd built for it. And my mom went, went into my bedroom for something, and there's this, like, 11-foot python curled up on the carpet. So my, you know, you can imagine my dad calls me and says, I'm picking you up in about an hour, and you're going to come home, and you're going to get rid of that python by tomorrow. So I took it to the Staten Island Zoo. He drove me over, and I took it to actually a keeper, who at that time is kind of crazy to think now they wanted it. I took it to a, a Carl Alamonti, who was a keeper, and it was a very pale-colored Burmese python. He questioned whether it was actually maybe an Indian python, much more valuable. It wasn't, but he thought it was cool. He said he might keep it as a pet, and he took it. But while I was in the reptiles, I ran into this young curator, keeper maybe, who was Zappalerti. So we had this conversation. This is like in late 1970s. And then, again, I contact him again, and three, four years ago, he takes me out for a day, he was at that time approaching 80, an amazing field guy, right? And he takes me out for three days altogether, and we did wood turtles, bog turtles, and I got to see my first wild bog turtle, some of them in very unexpected places, right? Some of them in horse pastures and some of them behind restaurants, uh, you know, and, and, and roads, on main roads. But that, to me, that was the most surprising, actually. When I started writing about it, I thought, yeah, people expect to hear stuff about these animals that live in spots they, they're never going to see, most likely. But right in, right in my home state, very densely populated state, there is room for these animals if we simply, you know, appreciate them and protect them and, and watch after their habitat. You know, I know, <laughs> I know of the populations in Pennsylvania. Some of them have really gotten to like um, some of the the new man-made habitats. Um, you know, power line right of ways. You know, at the bottom of those major, you know, major structures can create some habitat that they really like hanging in at parts of the year and stuff. So it's also kind of interesting how bog turtles have found some of these new man-made habitats to really um, spend a good portion of their life in as well. And there are a lot of people out there who are property owners who want to develop their property, but if they knew that there's this very rare turtle on it and they, knew, they understood the real value of it, they wouldn't. And we, I believe we've given money to the Turtle Conservation Fund, which is you know, sort of the nonprofit that's allied with the specialist group and with TSA and with TC and other, and other groups, the American Turtle Observatory. And um, I believe we've given money to property owners who have proposed to make improvements to the property, but improvements that protect boggy areas. Mm -hmm. and don't drain them <clears throat> and we, we you know give them some modest amount of money for the, the materials they need because yeah you keep those animals for you know forever living behind your house and it's it's the same thing i you know the primate work i do in brazil there's this incredible developed strip of the coast of brazil where there's rio sao paulo you'd think there'd be nothing left but there are landowners who have been persuaded that it's super cool to have rare monkeys on your property so instead of turning their land into all cattle ranch um, they preserve some forest patches where you have these, some of them critically rare endangered primates. So same thing works. You know, it can work all over the world. It works especially well when people can afford to not exploit everything, right? When they can afford to not eat the animals or not, not cut down the trees the animals need for forest habitat. But yeah, there are novel solutions for sure. We run into, um, at work, we, we, we run into that issue a lot 
with uh, property owners, you know, and what one thing that goes hand in hand with some of the stuff you were saying just this past winter, um, we were, we were doing some tiger salamander work and we had to, Bob had to convince uh, the homeowner, you know, it, you know, the conservation efforts that we were trying to make to uh, we were going to basically translocate these egg masses, you know, uh, right. and we were trying, and, and the guy, he, he, he worked, Bob worked his magic and, and everything worked out and we were able to save a lot of those salamanders. But basically, you know, this guy was all about not cooperating because he want he wanted to be able to de develop every aspect of his land. He didn't want to deal with the 150 foot buffer. He'd have to put around the wetland, you know, right. and it worked out. And I, I think, you know, with, with stuff like salamanders and, and obviously turtles, um, a lot of times, and just from what I know, at least, you know, um, it, it tends to go a little bit more in favor of the animal, but then when you're dealing with the snakes, sometimes it's really bad news for the snake. <laughs> right. I mean, like we all know that it's a, it's a big thing in our country that there are local state and federal uh, regulations that come into play and sometimes prevent people from doing what they want to do with land that they, you know, inherited and is theirs for generations, their families, or that they spent their life savings buying. And, you know, there's a, I, I get it. It's a, it's a conflict. And, you know, hopefully there's something that can be worked out somewhere, some compromise, some compensation. It's, it's you know, Europe, it's a little bit less of a problem because people are just, in my experience, um, they're just a little bit le less, um, I don't know, I don't want to say libertarian, but they're just a little bit less, keep your hands off my things. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, but, but, but there as well. So, um, yeah, no, it's a problem and it's going to, it'll always be a problem. Obviously it'll be more of a problem because, as land becomes scarcer and scarcer. But but I think the point is, like I, I saw with Zappalorti in my little time there in Jersey, there are solutions. Sometimes there are solutions. And you don't expect solutions all the time, mm -hmm. um, but sometimes there are, so. Yep. You mentioned uh, the, you, you kind of briefly mentioned turtles being the most endangered vertebrate group. I, I really wanna ask you a little bit about this because that's something that I see popping into my head and something I think about when I'm writing all the time. You have such a great knowledge of both of those groups. It is turtles, and can you speak to that a little more? Yeah. Just like to, but to be clear, what I mean by that is that if you consider large groups of vertebrates, so about 360 species turtles, and just incidentally primates, uh, about 450 species currently. Those are both large groups. So if you were to consider a smaller group like iguanas, literally every iguana species in the world, except green iguanas, is I believe every other species is threatened in some way with extinction, because you know, those Caribbean islands have their own species there. Some of them are just on the brink, right, of extinction. But that, but, that, but, that, but that group, that family only has, or the iguanas within the family only have, uh, I want to say something like 70 or fewer, fewer than that species. Um, so I'm not counting that. If you counted that, the smaller groups, is high percentage. But yeah, so turtles and tortoises, the number is um, around um, between 50 and 55%. Maybe it's like 51% right now. And just, you know, coincidentally with primates, non-human primates, it's the same. It's something that might be 54% or something. And again, you know, you get into these sometimes semantic battles about which, what, what are we going to call this and what do you call that one? And I will say that in terms of, you asked earlier about the process, the, the up, I don't know if you were there, but at one of the earliest TSA meetings when I was chair, I decided to do an open session. I've done it twice, actually, open forum where I have a list of all the species that we're not sure what to call them. 
like they're, they're listed as data deficient or not evaluated. Those are two categories. And we get everybody into an, into the auditorium or whatever. And you're sitting in on that. Yeah, yeah. And I say, okay, who knows what's what's the status of the Suwannee alligator snapper? Who knows what's and I and I you know and you just wait for somebody to shout it out. It was pretty polite. It was actually pretty. I was expecting total chaos. There were a few individuals who were known to be chaotic, so they. But but I'm I'm saying this because I modeled that after my colleague Russ Mittermeier, who does it for the primate group. And oh my gosh, I have seen fights break out. Like fights where I was worried there'd be somebody would throw a punch at these groups because people just, you know, people have spent their lives studying some species. And then you tell them, yeah, I don't think, I don't think we should consider this one of the top 25 most endangered anymore or right now. Or I think we should be downlisted. Oh my gosh, you can, you know, as you can imagine, people start telling you you don't know what you're talking about and they've got an emotional stake in those species. So it can be really contentious if you, you know, you want to be democratic about it. You want to get everybody's input, but that obviously just as every democracy that creates chaos. So, um, so yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's something I've been dealing with a lot and it's fine. It's the way we have to do it really. So did that answer your question? Yeah. So the size, the size, the size, yeah, it's, it's, it's what percentage of the total species in the group are in a threatened with extinction category. So if they're considered near threatened or, you know, not evaluated or data deficient, or not, you know, then those are not considered threatened with extinction. It's the upper categories. And that's, that's a higher percentage than any other large group other than primates. Wow. Yeah, and so and for everybody, like that's... Um, I'm sorry? Just, what, what would, so that would make be, it large? Over 100? So that, oh, uh, yeah, I mean, again, it's just semantic. But for me, a couple hundred or more, yeah. I'd like semantics. Yeah, again, some of these specialist groups have 500,000, 5,000 species in them, right? So we're we're probably at the bottom end of being large. Yeah. yeah. Um, and for those for those of you unfamiliar, um, the group of threatened statuses would be from um, vulnerable to endangered to critically endangered and beyond. It's the near threatened and least concern, and then those other data deficient, et cetera, that would be not threatened. At least concern, and I hope I'm not contradicting myself because I'm not sure what the rest it says. I don't have it in front of me. Least concern would be something like an Eastern painted turtle. You know, right. yeah. We're not, nobody's worried about them. They're everywhere. They're in every exactly. pond in the eastern U.S. And then, you know, but then some of the others are kind of on the border where you could argue. And then you get into these things at workshops that we do where one species we decide to uplist and somebody says, well, if you're going to uplist that species, you sure better uplist this species. Mm -hmm. And then, then we have this whole thing. But that's the process. And as I said, it's, it's relying on expert advice. And then it goes – and then it's not only expert advice. So, so these experts gather at a workshop – and they render an opinion. We break into little breakout groups. They render opinions. And then those um, assessments are sent out to external reviewers, mm -hmm. independent reviewers. And the reviewer might say, I have no idea what they were thinking when they were in that room. They're just totally wrong. And then I'm, I, I have to, with the Red List coordinator, adjudicate that. So, yeah. And then I get emails from people saying, what's going on? I'm frustrated. This species needs more protection and more, more attention. And so it's been years. What's, and then I get that a lot. And then I have to say, sorry, we're working on this problem. So do you, do you find, and I know we have talked about this on the show before, and I cannot, I don't know, was it Peter Paul? I, I can't remember. Somebody did a talk about this at one of the um, symposiums about, um, you know, should we be paying more attention to the common species? You know, it, it, yes, do, you, right. do you feel that, you know, there's so much the, you know, eyes of the world on so many of these 
you know, uh, the bog turtle, Cora species, whereas we're forgetting about the painted turtle? You know, I mean, I, I mean, eastern painted turtles might be a rare exception where there are lots and lots, but there definitely are many species in between. Yeah, Peter Paul has talked about that. Brian Horn has talked about that where you want to prevent them from reaching that point where now we're suddenly freaking out about what to do. Exactly. That, right. That's kind of part of the big picture, of course. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are species that are, I'm not even thinking about radio sliders, obviously, but there are species that are kind of, kind of weed species in a sense, meaning they're generalists and they can survive in many places. Mm -hmm. um, so they're not going to be extinct any, in our lifetime for sure. I mean, they're not going to be threatened in our lifetime. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's always good to be thinking ahead. And certainly there are habitat types that you can just look ahead and you can say, you know, okay, well, everybody wants their hands on this habitat type. And, you know, I mean, bob turtles, a generation ago, it, it should have been obvious mm. that they're, they're habitat specialists. They go away when somebody drains those, those sphagnum bogs. Mm. Um, but then you try to protect those. But, you know, you know, Chris, the human nature thing is that we don't tend to act until there's, to you, have, you know, climate change. We don't, we don't act until it's a dire threat. Mm -hmm. and, Tried to get people to put forward big time funding before it's truly dire. It's a, it's a harder sell. Yeah. So, but yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. It, we um, you know, on, even on a smaller scale, you know, we when we're working with Fish and Wildlife and and the different commissions and stuff over here, we're you know we're constantly submitting data, constantly submitting data, and it's something that we've known too is you know they want to collect as much information from us as possible, you know, and then that's where our permits come into play and everything. But it just seems like it's a lot of people don't realize this too, is it's not just on a state level level, but it's also national and it's even global is that like what you were just saying, that's, that's just human nature is we, we wait so long. And a lot of these, even the wildlife agencies, they wait so long to finally say, okay. I mean, the diamondback terrapin over here was, was a great example. Why was that on, the game list until what was that 2016 steve right right right. you know and then and you know what i mean and i i saw one comment in the chat about and it's true so many people uh you know they're they've constantly got baby terrapins they're constantly taking baby terrapins they're constantly and nobody's doing anything about it nobody's doing anything about it you know and then you know we we wait until they're disappearing on certain locations like on long beach island those things were gone if it wasn't for kathy lacy's terrapin nesting project they wouldn't they wouldn't be back you know right yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna mention her and mention you because those releases. Yeah. I mean, I, when I go back home, I, you know, I, I grew up at this beach house right next to Island Beach State Park, so just above, just above Long Beach Island, and the the, the density and the population of diamondback terrapins is so much higher today there mm -hmm. in, in the in the salt marsh at brackish areas of Barnegat Bay, so much higher than when I was growing up. And of course, funny, of that's where I saw my very first wild one on a school field trip, and it was yeah, same. Oh, cool. yeah. the, the field guide was parting the reeds and saying, okay, everybody's got to be quiet. If this thing goes in, we're not going to see one for the rest of the day. And we all got a quick glimpse of what was probably a female, you know, and, and now, now when you look through those reeds, there's a thousand heads. Go know? out on a spring morning and you'll see literally hundreds basking somewhere. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. My first view was uh, we would go crabbing mm -hmm. in, in the quiet waters in Barnegat Bay in shallow water with just walking with a crab net and a basket in an inner tube and seeing a terrapin zoom past once in a while. You know, you startled it and just zoom past. Yeah, now it's not such a, you know, prized, cherished thing. But honestly, without the, all of the releases you guys do, I, I don't think that would be the case. It isn't just about changing the ethic or protecting the habitat. We've also helped a lot, the, the populations to restore. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, the, whole thing, the global issues are, they're huge. And, you know, the problem also is there are so many causes today. Like uh, when I was growing up, 
Save the Whales was a huge thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you had like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young writing songs about saving the whales. Mm-hmm. It weren't that, there weren't that many causes, right? Save the Rainforest. There were like five causes. Now there are a million causes and Save the Turtles <laughs> is, is one and it's hard to get people paying attention because, and people who like to give money, which Americans are incredible because we are so good at volunteering. We're so good at, at giving some part of our, of our wealth away for good causes. But there's so many people asking you all the time, mm-hmm. right? It's in, your, it's in your email every day. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a hard sell sometimes. But I do think we've made progress, actually, in the, in the last 20, 30 years. We're going to lose some species, no doubt, in the next century, but we've made progress. Right. Well, that's good to hear. I feel like we, you know, we don't get to hear that perspective that much, you know? Yeah. So, um, you know, we've talked about some some species that have kind of recovered a little bit. And, you know, we talked a little bit about your your upcoming book where you're highlighting 16 uh, in critically endangered species. Um, so let's shift to one that I'd be surprised if you didn't mention in your book. I think it's one of your favorite ones. Um, you know, we've kind of partnered a little bit, Turtle Room and you, uh, to kind of make some things happen with uh, the Quahilan box turtle. So let's uh, take our focus. Uh, for the the last leg of our show onto uh, species that we definitely all love. And so let's talk about the work that you've gotten involved in down in Mexico. And uh, and Chris can speak a bit towards the, how the captive side has, you know, uh, been able to play a role in that as well. Um, I think this would be a fun conversation and to take it home with. Yeah, you, you guys are all involved and that's really super. And yeah, there is a chapter in the book, of course, about the whole situation that the Cuatro Cienegas Valley in northern Mexico, which is the only place in the world where this species lives. And um, I got into, I love box turtles always. I got interested in this species when we were uh, turtle conservancy folks were driving around Mexico. We did this like 2,000 kilometer trip in a caravan of pickups. I always say we look more like narcos than turtle biologists. Like, <laughs> bring a white pickup truck with tinted windows and. We, uh, we, we were looking at our own um, land that, we, you know, the Turtle Conservancy purchases land and then we protect it, even if it's in a biosphere reserve, often it's not really protected. So we protect it for the sake of turtles, which are kind of an umbrella species, then we protect a whole lot of other stuff too. Right. So we were looking at our, our, our areas and then we also stopped in places we'd always wanted to, to look at potential future projects. And Cuatro Cienegas was the place I really wanted to go. It's a magnificently beautiful valley. It's surrounded by mountains. I, at one time, 60, 70 years ago, during the rainy season in late summer, the, the valley would literally flood a lot of it several inches deep. And the wetlands, it, it's dotted with wetlands, some of them permanent, some of them seasonal. And these beautiful deep turquoise blue water holes, called posas, that are very mineralized, which is why they're so really turquoise. And they're all, the water there is filled with about 10 endemic fish found nowhere else, three endemic turtles, uh, two sub, it's a species of slider, the Quahila box turtle we'll talk about, and a subspecies of spiny softshell. And, and uh, over the years, uh, agriculture outside the valley, you know, they began putting in wells and drawing down the water table. And so no longer floods. Now you just have remnant wetlands, and the turtles are in those remnant wetlands. And because they're box turtles, even though they're largely aquatic, and they spend a lot of their lives in like six or eight inch uh, six or eight inch deep water, sometimes super heated water in the hot season, they do leave that water when it dries up and go across the desert to other uh, wetlands. So you'll find this mostly aquatic animal in the middle of a harsh desert, which is amazing. So anyway, that, you know, I really wanted and, and, and Eric Good of the Turtle Conservative agreed that we should really target that area with three endemics 
as a place we should try to protect. We're still in the process. It's super complicated. There's a pueblo at the edge of it called Cuatro Cienegas, a very beautiful scenic little Mexican town, um, a tourist center that Americans don't know about, thankfully, probably, but is a very big center for Mexican tourism. People go kayaking, people go rock climbing, people do altering vehicle stuff. And then um, you have all this agriculture surrounding, corporate agriculture, I mean, where you have some of the huge um, agro companies that are just siphoning off water. All right, so um, in the 60s, the population was estimated at 50,000 box turtles. That was by a master's student from Florida State. Um, I joined a team of Mexican scientists led by uh, Dr. Gamalia Castaneda, who is now a close colleague and friend, who beginning in 2010 was surveying, censusing the turtles, and he's still doing that. He has an estimate of around 1,500 turtles left, somewhere between 700 and 2,200, that's I think the, the range. And um, that's scary. And I think that the one, the one saving grace of these turtles, that they're still there at all, is that unlike many boxers, or unlike Otis, <laughs> your, your, your incredibly brilliantly colored Easter, they're, they're not pretty, right. right? I mean, I think they're super cool. The juveniles are very pretty, but the adults are just a very drab, brown, olive color. And so, you know, there, I'm sure there are some in the pet trade. I'm sure some have been, we know some have been intercepted um, on the way to, to Asia, but they're not in the same kind of demand as many species, fortunately. So um, we've been working there. I've been working with them since 2017 continuing to census and re-census. COVID interrupted the project. Um, so now we're working on land purchase. And all I can say, because it's all kind of behind the scenes negotiating, is that we're working very hard to raise the funds and then use the funds to make a large purchase that would be the, our goal is the prime remaining wetland habitat that these box turtles live in. And it would be a huge important thing for us to do. We also need to purchase the water rights because otherwise somebody next to you just drains that water away and you don't have the wetlands anymore. That's happened out on the outer rim of the valley. Oh, wow. um, and it's, it's really, it's our effort. And there are sliders in the same habitat and there are the Quatrocianigas softshell in the same habitat. So I've been going back and forth. I'm going sometime later this summer and we are trying to negotiate um, a deal to buy some of that land and protect it. And it's actually, it's a biosphere reserve, the big part of the valley. It's a protected area outside the reserve. So you might say, well, what's the, what, what do you need to buy it for? It's protected. But, you know, as, as with many parts of the world, that's on paper. And what people actually do is something different. And so the land is threatened by all the water uh, being taken away. The, the prime wetlands where these turtles still thrive at high density has runoff from the mountains every year also. So it's not just reliant on the water table. So that's a really good thing in terms of the long-term future. But yeah, and I think I, I think none of you guys have, I know Chris, you and I have talked about you going there, but you haven't been down there yet, right? No, it, not yet. It's a gorgeous place. And yeah. there was a time some years ago before I was working there that there was a problem with the cartels, the drug cartels in that area. That's been negotiated. And to my knowledge and my colleagues' knowledge, it's, it's a quiet, safe place these days. Not, not true of all of Mexico, right? Um, and so we have everything from a captive breeding facility that we're building at my colleague's university, that Turtle Conservancy is helping to fund um, to the project itself, continuing the census and recensus, and then working with some of the local landowners to try to actually purchase and protect some of the land down there. And it's my main project these days. We published on the turtles themselves, but making the purchase and protecting the land in perpetuity is uh, is a big deal for, for us, for me. That's incredible. And, you know, one thing that uh, 
resonates with me, especially with, with these particular box turtles, what you were saying is, you know, they're, they're not pretty, you know, depending on what your definition of pretty is, you know, typically, you know, they don't have the conspicuous star pattern. They're not bright orange they're, you know, so although that, you know, there are certain animals being intercepted and, and there's different ways that they've made their way across different places that they weren't initially supposed to be for the most part, they don't seem to be as targeted as, you know, um, radiata or, or some of the Cora species, you know, or the, even the geomita species. So, um, do you find though that, and I mean, you know, cats out of the bag, you know, teaching the, the public about the, the fate and, you know, plight of a lot of these turtles is just something that has to be done no matter what. But do you find that, you know, as we all continue to let people know about just how dire the situation is for something like a Coheland box turtle, that that could heighten. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, the, the thing about this particular species is some species live in only little localities in a vast area. So you don't want anybody knowing where those localities are. And many times they've been published in the past. So saying we're not going to publish them now or, or ever show a map at a conference because it doesn't really solve it because there are old publications where some right. can just go to those. Um, but in many areas, it's a huge area, and no one would ever find the locality without a map. Cotosanagus mm -hmm. Valley is not a big valley, so we rely on the local government officials to really monitor it and for local word of mouth to make sure nobody's in there poaching. So, yeah, we do worry about it. To be honest, I think it's a, it's a bigger concern. Many of these little mud turtles occurring in Mexico that are also super drab. Mm -hmm. you know, as soon as you begin splitting them into new species, and we have a new species this year, we had a new species several years ago, then, then immediately they're on every collector's list. Right. And we, we begin to see them turning up in collections, especially in China, frankly. Yeah. So, yeah, that's definitely a concern. And um, all I can say is that, you know, we want to focus attention on the animals. And what we're going to eventually do when we have the land is literally fence it off. Obviously, you can climb a fence, but we'll have local management working on this on these animals. So right now, um, like I said, maybe 1,500 or so, um, and we just don't want the number to drop. The, the irony is that you guys have seen, you know, well, Chris, you have adults also, but we, we most of us have seen mostly juveniles, hatchlings and juveniles, because they breed easily. Oh, and they're out, they're out there available, you know. But what's interesting is in the wild, we don't find juveniles at all. First of all, we all know juveniles are hard to find in the wild. I was, I was just going to ask that, too, if you guys have come across any young animals. In, in, my, in my colleague Gamma's work in, a, in 12, 13 years now, I believe he's found no more than three or four juveniles ever. Okay. And we think that's because we see destroyed nests everywhere. Sometimes they're from sliders. Sometimes they're from box turtles. But we think that the, the subsidized predator problem is huge, that you have this town nearby. There's a garbage dump outside the town. You have raccoons, you have skunks, you have coyotes, you have foxes, mm -hmm. higher densities almost certainly. We haven't done any studies. That's actually one of our next projects is to, is to do that. Um, no doubt at higher densities than they've ever existed naturally. And it's a big problem. So we want to start studying predation of the nest, checking the nests themselves. Um, because, yeah, that's, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of evidence of recruitment to the populations at all, in fact. So actually, that's a species where they're not reduced to a handful yet. But because they breed well, there will no doubt be more animals in captivity sometime soon than there are in the wild. I'm sure, I know the Europeans have bred them in large numbers, and we've had offers from Europeans to ship us. Usually they want to ship us males, of course, mm -hmm. or, or little guys. But, yeah, I mean, um, we don't want to reintroduce them for fear of pathogens yet. 
but we do want captive breeding centers all over the place. I think they should be in Mexico, right there in the valley, elsewhere in Mexico, in the U.S., in Europe, just to make sure we have a captive reservoir population. So just to real quick, um, just to give any, any of the listeners some perspective, that is even more so than the, than the poaching aspect of it, because we're, we're already talking about a turtle that is not particularly attractive and is in a very isolated area. Um, you know, so they're not as targeted as, as, as much as like the Yucatana or the Mexicana uh, box turtles. But to, again, to give people per perspective, okay, nest predation on most of these species is so through the roof that un unless you're on the ground and you're witnessing it yourself, it's hard to put it into words, pictures, videos, YouTube videos, don't do it. Um, you know, the Northern Diamondback Terrapin here, okay? If we are not down the road at the right moment when those animals are depositing their eggs, the raccoons are so bold they're coming out during the day. The crows have facial and vehicle recognition. They're right on you. They're right on the turtle and they're quicker than you or the turtle. So they're actually pulling those eggs as the eggs are coming out of the female. So let's talk, let, not talk, but let, let's compare the Dimeback Terrapin to the Cohelan box turtle, okay? There are very stable numbers of Dimeback Terrapins right now, at least here in, so in Southern New Jersey, okay? But we are literally witnessing, and one of the reasons why the state wants us to continue our project with them, every single nest without fail is being predated. Wow. Now compare that to an animal that there's an estimated only 1,500 of the entire population left. And an animal that doesn't have a, a crew of volunteers and researchers right. and people like yourself out there. And an animal that takes even longer to mature. Absolutely. I mean, if, if it weren't for the fact that the box turtles... I mean, presumably, we don't know how long they live. Presumably, they live a long time like other box turtles. Let's say they live 40 years or something in the wild. If it weren't for that, they'd be gone yeah. because of the lack of recruitment. If they, if they had a 10-year lifespan, I think they'd be gone. So as it is, these animals you know, live a long time, and that's why they're there. So you just have to protect them while we can protect them. Um, yeah, no, it's a definitely a scary <clears throat> The other interesting thing to add is that the slider – might be more threatened than the box turtle. This is another thing we're going to be looking at in the next phase of our research. So the, the, the Quadrocyanica slider, Trichomys taylori, looks like a lot of these New World sliders, looks very, very much like a radiant slider. You need to be a slider, per, you need to be a turtle person to be able to distinguish them in the field with binoculars. Um, their problem is, uh, they, they're also getting their eggs are being undoubtedly destroyed by predators, but their problem is also people dumping radiant sliders into their habitat. As we know, it's a problem everywhere. Mexican people, just like Americans, uh, you know, they have a lot of baby sliders they've gotten in pet stores and their kids bring them home and they get bored and then they dump them into the rivers there and probably think they're doing a nice thing. So we actually have a student who's collected the data already and we, we have not gotten it analyzed yet, but we have the data to see if there's any genetic admixture from red ears in the Quattrocyanica slider population. And I think I'll be surprised if there's not something. So yeah, it's a... Uh, it's a unique situation. It's a valley that has been cut off from the outside for maybe a million years. And so species that probably, you know, there was some gene flow back and forth were cut off. And that's why you have all these endemic fish and a lot of cichlids and, and then also the endemic turtles. And so, you know, once they're gone, you're not replacing them. They have no, no other uh, in-source. So yeah, that's a, there are multiple problems and those are two of the big problems.
So we've hit on some of the big strokes. It's, you know, buy the land. It's, you know, study what's going on then maybe protect the animals. So what are some of the other details of like, what does it take to actually protect the land other than just like buying it? Right. Talk yeah. about a fence. But what other things are involved to actually make it protected more yeah. than just on paper? You know, one thing you can do is, yeah, that's a good point. So one of the things you can do is if you can't buy the land, one of the complicating things in Mexico that your listeners probably are not aware of is that after the Mexican Revolution 100 years ago, the government did this socialist thing of giving land back to the peasants, the campesinos, who had lost their land to wealthier people, just took it away. And so they did this by creating land collectives. So multiple families would jointly own land. So the land areas that we're trying to purchase, some of them will have 50, 60, close to 100 owners families that are owning them. So you need to get a, a majority, usually almost a unanimous majority of people agreeing to sell. And so that's a big obstacle. One, one thing that one can do if you can't buy the land, like Control Conservancy strategy is to have a handful of, of sites that we have and then invest very deeply vertically in them. Lot, you know, huge amounts of money and resources we put into them and we try to control the land outright. But if you can't do that, you also can create easements where you literally pay local people or work with local people and say, we're gonna build you a hospital, we're gonna build you, we're gonna hire you teachers in exchange for you showing us that you're protecting the land and we'll census the turtles to make sure you're actually doing that year after year after year. So yeah, buying the land is difficult. Then of course, you know, we're gringos, we're all Americans involved here, we're, we're, we're based in America. So then we, we, we have nonprofits that are in many countries now, Mexico being one, and we work through those nonprofits to acquire the land using um, Mexican host country, um, biologists, conservationists, um, interested parties and so forth, so that they then, it's their reserve. And we have local, and we have lower level management too that we hire and train who are from that area, of course. So yeah, it's a major undertaking. It's very, very different than just saying, okay, we're gonna give $10,000 to such and such researcher and you know, call it a partnership. And we do that, and it's important to do that all over the world, we should all be doing that. But our strategy is, it's a difficult, but hopefully it's one that will last for perpetuity process where we actually kind of, um, you know, we literally do purchase the land and then make it privately owned land owned by the nonprofit within the context of an already on paper reserved area. And we might, we might fence it off. The, the land that we have in the Conservancy has in Mapimi, in the deserts of Durango, where we have the Bolson Tortoise Preserve, is, is tens of thousands of acres that literally is, is, is fenced to keep out cows and horses, which tra trampling the baby tortoises, trampling their burrows. So it's a biosphere reserve again. It's the first biosphere reserve in Mexico. Tortoises were not protected because livestock were just running rampant all over the land and we're trying to prevent that. Wow. I think people, I don't think people realize, um, you know, you have to think outside the box sometimes when you think of the threats that are, uh, you know, looming over a lot of these turtles and tortoises you know people automatically think you know poaching uh pollution stuff like that but something as simple as you know livestock you know domesticated livestock like horses uh and and cows can, can be can destroy a habitat like that you know so um, yeah, that's there always are these secondary effects and then we you know as you're doing the work you learn about more secondary effects right, right, right. and then novel i mean i always think it's interesting because they're you know just like any movement there always is infighting squabbling what are you going to do and politics but by and large I, I like to think of us the specialist group and everybody and you guys everybody involved as kind of this army that is fighting for 
turtles and tortoises. And many of us are in little groups fighting for particular species, but we come up with these novel solutions. You know, my, my friend Mercy Vaughn, Jim Nagel, and others out in the Mojave Desert who are using drones to spray oil onto ravens' nests, not just destroy the eggs because the ravens just re-nest, but cover the eggs with oil so they don't hatch, but the ravens continue to sit on them because the ravens are the incredibly intense subsidized predator hammering desert tortoise, baby desert tortoises and desert tortoise populations. So that kind of thing. Somebody came up with a brilliant idea. I don't even know who to credit with that idea, actually. Others got together and and we work on solutions. So that's that's kind of the way it's supposed to happen. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I've never thought to do that, you know? Yeah, I mean, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's remarkable to see it happen. Yeah. Even, even to have the idea, who's going to yeah. put together, okay, we're going to get this drone, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna equip it with oil and a spray can, and we're going to fly it up to the top yeah. of the telephone pole and spray this raven's nest that is, you know, and we only learned that we had to do this because people doing telemetry began discovering that they would be they would be trying to track on these baby tortoises and or larger tortoises and they're tracking them to the top telephone poles because yeah, they're right. carrying them up there. So then we realized this big problem. Get rid of That's the reasons, right. you know. Better patent that before Apple does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want some of those oil drones out here for the fishing so, and American crowd. Yeah, 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 so are those ravens uh, um, native species to that area that are just su overly subsidized? Yeah, they are. I mean, just like skunks yeah. in Mexico, they're, they're, they're the native, you know, common raven. They're everywhere, but they are at much higher density because as we've moved into the desert, you right. know, our, our, our suburbs and our shopping malls and whatnot, we create lots and lots of food piles for the ravens so the populations keep growing. So it's about balancing their population as opposed to letting it oh. continue to get out of hand. Essentially. Yeah, we're not, we're not trying to or able to annihilate the ravens right. in the desert. But Don't want to do that either. No, but to keep them in check at least a bit. It's, right. it's, it's this never-ending balance, you know. It's, right, exactly. Sometimes they are invasives, and then you have, you know, an effort to remove, say, feral cats from some island like we have here in right. California. And then, of course, you have animal welfare people get very, very upset about that and try to find other solutions. And I'm always on the I'm always on the side of the ecosystem, but you know I've, I've worked a lot of right. my I've worked with Jane Goodall a lot of my career, and she very much is about the individual animal sanctity, and don't don't go out. It's not okay to go out and start slaughtering animals, you know, for right. any. So there's always that balance that we have to try to strike and try to do it in some kind of ethical way. Yeah, right. That's interesting. Huh. All right. That's a conversation. That's a, that's so a good much. talk tonight, man. Yeah, see, a good comment. I noticed comments. Right? Yeah, very nice comments in the chat. If we keep importing forty to sixty thousand Russian tortoises a year, yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a, you know, the Russian the Russian tortoise thing. I find interesting is you go to a, a Petco or whatever, and they got Russian tortoises. It used to be that they were like when I was a kid, they were Greek tortoises, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're Herman's tortoises, and this goes back hundreds of years when sailing ships brought Herman's tortoises to the UK. From other parts of you know the Mediterranean, and they just keep we keep going east, and now they've reached Kazakhstan, and that's where all these Russian tortoises are coming from, and they're going to be depleted there also, no question, unless you put some restrictions on the on the imports, right? So, wow, yeah, I remember I I, I can't remember who it was. It may have been somebody that uh, one of one of Bob's old timer friends was talking about how at the Woolworths they used to be able to buy baby Texas tortoises for like ten cents. That Oh, I'm not surprised. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> the one, one of the God, I wish I can remember the, the one guy's name, but he was saying that was his first pet tortoise. Uh, 
he wanted he wanted a red-eared slider and his parents took him to Woolworth to get a baby red-eared slider and then he saw the Texas tortoise you know and it was just like a couple cents more you know? yeah when I was a kid I had a I had a friend of mine and I shared a gopher tortoise actually oh wow that was, I think it was bought online I bought online that's really there was no online it was bought through a mail order kind of a thing <laughs> yep ship your gopher tortoise I mean these things sound bizarre to uh current day ethics but that's what people did yeah yeah um, it was a different world. I mean, it was a different world 20 years ago, too. So it's, it's our relationship with, with nature as a society has definitely um, continued to evolve. Uh, I think mostly for the better in general. We're, we're learning, you know, as a species for sure. I, I, I love it most when I go to some of the places where I work. And one of the things I love to do as a chair is I go to developing countries and work with usually younger conservationists who are working super hard, have no money and no recognition for their work from either the government or the international community, and then hang with them and give them advice and support and talk to the government or whatever. But so when I worked in Thailand those years on Manuria Emmys Ferai, which is a wonderful artist, right? And we worked in the, we had a camp in the center of the range. They were, it was the middle of a national park, Ken Kuchen National Park, where they were not being poached, although they are poached elsewhere and they're rapidly declined in Southeast Asia. But we'd be in this campground, and then when holiday weekends would come, you would have just, wow, on a Friday evening, you'd have hundreds and hundreds of Thai people arrive in SUVs and campers, and they'd set up their tents, and they'd set up their hibachi grills, and they'd, barbe- they'd do sauteed chicken all weekend. And, but they would spend the weekend, just in terms of how the ethic has changed, not just in the U.S. or Europe, but elsewhere. They'd spend the weekend, you know, you'd see them out there with their cameras, and their tripods doing wildlife photography, photographing butterflies. They'd be hiking with guides, looking at nature. They'd be they'd be doing watercolors. You know, it was really super cool. And then Monday would come, and they'd all leave Sunday night to go back to Bangkok, and they would not leave a scrap. A, they would put an average American campground to shame in terms of what it looks like on Monday morning. You know, they yeah. were very very respectful, and because they could afford it, because Thailand is more of a happening country economically. Mm-hmm. And in very poor parts of Thailand, people still hunt for tortoises for sure, but mm-hmm. not in the areas that have become national parks where you have a, a more educated, aware population. So we just have to hope that that, that movement, that, that ability to appreciate rather than just exploit, just continues to expand while we still have the animals here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I love for it. sure. Awesome. Craig, thank you again for joining us tonight. This has been a, a really um, awesome conversation uh, to wind uh, wind through. Um, I think our, our audience really enjoyed it tonight as well. Um, I, I look forward to seeing you in in August at uh, in Tucson for sure. I know I'll be there um, as well as some of the other Turtle Room folks. I don't know that Anthony or Chris will get there uh, this year, but uh, but I know there's several of us that are planning to be there. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. I'm really hoping because now we've had two years on Zoom, and we yeah. actually, we've actually gathered new interested members, parties, and students who net normally could never fly yeah. to Tucson. I'm hoping we can keep them either by having some yeah. sessions or whatever, but right. yeah, thank you for your part also, Steve, with your listserv management you do for us. Yep. But yeah, this is an interesting meeting as we'll have uh, 
in-person, in-person interaction. Right. Actually, so one thing we've been talking about doing is um, is maybe that Monday night after the first day of the conference is maybe doing like a remote podcast podcast where I'm out there and we can maybe have a couple people pop on or something with us and just talk about what's going on uh, with the conference. Might be an interesting way to like connect, kind of connect to some of that other audience as well. So that would be super cool. Yeah, I know that one of the other. Um, one of the other meetings that I go to, there's a guy who does a podcast. He actually walks around. I guess it must be recording. He walks around talking to people, at posters, yeah. interviewing them. And it's, I think it's not totally live, but it's, it's great content for people to watch. Right. Yeah. Live from China or India or wherever. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, Greg, thank you very much. That, that was, uh, that was, I can't believe that went by that fast. <laughs> you know? yeah, no, good talking to you guys. Really, really good talking to you. And it was good. So, cool. um, Anthony, Chris, Craig, any last words? Um, I don't know. No, I, I don't. I just say thank you for listening. I, I'm kind of trying to, with one eye, look at some of the chat comments. I think they're really good. Um, and just thanks for tuning in. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. So glad you could join us for uh, the podcast episode 87. Up, oh, Anthony. Sounds like you might want to say something. Oh, did you hear no. that? Am I in a delay? <laughs> Uh, I was going to ask Craig. I'm, it sounded I'm like you were going to say something. Um, what was that? I was. You can't hear me. What were you going to ask yeah. me? Can hear you. Go for it. Go okay. for it. I was going to ask. I'm, I'm, I'm going to L.A. in June, and I'm wondering if uh, it's worth going to the L.A. County Natural History Museum. Yeah. Question mark. Oh, it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, the zoo has actually a new and really excellent reptile house. And what's cool is that Ian Recchio, who's okay. the curator in LA Zoo, he didn't want the generic zoo reptile. So there are no like giant anacondas or whatever. Um, so there are a lot of super unusual herps in the reptile house, mainly snakes and vipers and whatnot. Right. And the Natural History Museum doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. I have an appointment there actually, um, because we're in LA. So people don't come to LA to go to the Natural History Museum, right? But you might. So. Yeah, totally. And if I'm in town, let me know, and I'll give you a I'll give you a personalized kind of a tour if I'm around. I'm going to be going away mid June to to Europe and then Mexico. But if I'm around, yeah, sure. I'll ask. Yeah. Awesome. It's, like, it's a little bit like a mini. It's a miniature version of the American Museum in New York. I would say it's a little bit smaller, but still excellent. Yeah. Awesome. Super cool. All right. Thank you guys uh, for Anthony, Chris, and Craig. Um, Steve, enjoy your night, and thank you for watching uh, the podcast episode eighty-seven.